Lights up on a park bench. Lights up on a deck. Lights up. Lights up. Lights up. Lights up. Lights up. Lights up. A podcast by the Ensemble Theatre of Chattanooga. Good afternoon, Miss Christy. Good afternoon, Miss Dana. And hello to everyone out there. You are tuning into Lights Up. Um, I'm Christy with Ensemble Theatre of Chattanooga. And I am Dana Cole Giovanni. Um, I guess being brought in by Ensemble Theatre of Chattanooga. <laughs> a friend of, actress yes. extraordinaire. <laughs> yes, friend of, guest of. Um, and so happy to be here on our awesome podcast, Lights Up. Yeah, so I am excited about the piece that we are discussing today. The first time I read it, like the when I was done reading it, I immediately was like, whoa, there's just such a such a heavy theme to it that's just rife with real life. So um I, as I understand now, now walk me through it a little bit. Dana, do you know do you know the playwright Emma or how does how did you come across this piece? No, this is um, this is this is an exciting piece. I think for both of us, for all of us, because Emma Rund, the playwright, is new to all of us, and this is how uh, I was introduced to Emma's work, kind of through the magic of theater and um, the family of theater, right? Isn't and I think so true. Yeah, and hopefully everyone listening, um, if if you have only ever been a patron, we love you and, and you're part of the family of theater, but I'm sure we have a lot of people who have also been backstage, on stage, in technical theater. And you know, and this includes the audience, but when you do theater, you become a family and you may only work with someone for one contract. It may be six weeks. You may work with someone at a theater and do you know four shows and you're there six months, but whatever it is, those people become your family on stage and off stage. And um, I also, because I just, uh, I was explaining to you and Gary earlier today, if I meet you and I like you, I keep you, you become <laughs> mine. I really like tend to hoard and collect people that I love. And so I will make family, I will make theater family um, when I'm waiting in an audition holding room. And in New York, uh, I'm, I'm a member of Actors' Equity. And so you can go to these EPAs, Equity Principal Auditions. <clears throat> and where there's like probably three or four different studios in New York. And you just, where they all hold all the different Broadway, off-Broadway, regional auditions. And so after a while, you kind of start seeing the same people in the audition room over and over again. And you see that same person's headshot. You might hear them singing their, their go-to 16 bar cut through the door. And I, I don't see anybody as competition in there. I see them as my family. So if I start seeing the same people over and over again, I strike up a conversation. As most of our listeners know by now, I don't have a problem talking. <laughs> like I don't <laughs> run out of words. So I met this dear friend of mine, Andrew Betts, who um, will, is, is an actor in one of our pieces. He's, he's going to be an actor in pop. If, we, if you haven't heard that episode yet, or if we haven't released it, be looking for that one. Um, but through Andrew, I was given Emma's work. So Emma is a friend of Andrew's and Andrew is a friend of mine. So oh, we got Emma's play through this little this theater family connection. Um, and yes, you said you read it immediately and had this very strong reaction. I did as well. And I remember I shared it with Gary, our producer, and he said his reaction uh, was, I can't wait to hear what Christy says about this as a mother. So, so for you, I don't believe, um, well, I'm curious to talk to Emma and find out if she has children. I don't believe she does. Um, I don't have children. My, my only child is, is a three-legged cat. She's covered in fur. So I don't, <laughs> I don't have children. <laughs> uh, Gary doesn't have children. So I, I'm so excited to hear your response, as was Gary, um, as, as one of the only people on this show that we're working with right now who is a mother who has a child, because this does deal with family and not, not necessarily in my sense, in the theater sense, but actual biological family and parenting and children. Um, so, so was that something that you think, had you read this five, 10 years ago, you, you would have read it differently? I do think I would have read it differently. So I have, um, I'm a fairly new mom, I guess you could say my little one is just about 19 months old and reading this, I mean, even in the description of 
her um, her female character, you know, one of the things she says is she's wearing the same thing that she's worn for days, essentially. And mm. I, that was one of the first things that struck me as far as there's a shift, which I mean, people say, you know, you just don't know what it's like until you're there kind of thing. And I, I you know, you hear that. And especially as an actor, you want to believe that I can imagine it. So it's not going to be that right. different, but the truth of it is it was such a shift for me, um, truly becoming a mom that like here, like reading those words, I immediately had this picture of just that mom that's, Hey, it's whatever it takes. This is my baby. You know, I, <laughs> I spent nine months growing this, you know, I went through hard labor to have this little one and, and something like this. And I don't want to like spoil the story. Cause I know we're, we're going to listen to it in a, in a few minutes, but um, I'm, just wanting to fight for your child. Like we went through all this together. I'm not going to let this stand in between your life. Does that make sense? Like whatever medical hardship, no, we will fight through this because you are important. Like it was just this whole, I don't even know if I'm really explaining that well, but it was this whole reaction I had of like, man, you know, like it's just that mom, that mom lion heart just comes out. Yes. Yes. And so, so to clarify, yes, we're talking about a family story here and it's centering around uh, a mom who uh, the story takes place in a hospital and it is a mom who has a sick child there. And I think that's basically all you need to to know right now. Um, And yes, I think you explained that perfectly. And as someone who doesn't have children and does have a younger sibling, has cared for children, I can't begin to explain, um, or sorry, I can't begin to understand exactly what you feel. So the only thing that I can say to myself to try and empathize with you as a mother is that is a love that is unmatched and unknown. Hmm. That's the only I can, I would imagine that your love for your son is unmatched and unknown to any other relationship that you've ever had. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And so that's the only way I can describe it to myself to go, oh my God, that's what she's feeling, right? Because I, I haven't grown or birthed or, or, or raised a child at all. And so when I try to put myself in a parent's shoes, that's kind of how I, I describe it. And that's what I think you were describing, this, this fight that you're willing to go through. And, and so our female character, our, our mom is presented with this, but the other flip side, the, the other theme that, and questions that came up when I was reading this um, were, uh, my biggest question is, is forgiveness conditional? Oh, when I read this. Beautiful question. When you, when you um, start diving into unpacking that question, what a beautiful question. So I, I think I can't wait to talk to Emma and kind of dive into that with her, but maybe as we're listening, that that's a question you could ask yourself. That's a question I ask myself. And, and when, when you're comforting, and this is a great question for a mother, when you're comforting someone else, when you're comforting another human, do you really mean everything you're saying? Or are you saying that because comfort is the goal? You know, what is the value of your words when your goal is to comfort and calm and show love? Um, is is everything taken at, at its word? And those were two questions that this play left me asking. And I love when I can ask really deep, possibly unanswerable questions after a play, especially a 10 minute play. <laughs> yes, know? which I think speaks walking away with such experiences, such questions, I think speaks to the beautiful piece that she has put together. And I don't, you know, I don't know how many drafts or whatnot this has gone through, but I think she should be so very proud of um, the the visceral response that people have to this work. Yeah. Um, you know what I mean? Um, man, that question about forgiveness, that's a great one. I, I'm actually going to be, you know, listening with a new filter as we listen to this, this reading. Um, yeah. What a great question. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think that's something we can ask ourselves now, um, before you hear this, like, what is your answer if you have one on that? And then I challenge all of our listeners to ask themselves that again. And I, I can't wait to ask 
Emma about that and see if she has an answer. I don't know if that's a question any of us can answer, but I'm I'm excited and and I'm really, really glad we picked this piece for the show. Me too. Me too. Well, thank you for bringing it into our lives so that we can share it with others. So with that thought, without filter, let's go ahead and give a listen to Emma Run's To Fix a Dinosaur. Lights up on the back stairwell of a hospital. Felix, wearing a rumpled t-shirt and jeans and looking completely exhausted, bursts through the second floor doorway and runs down the stairs. Liz, wearing the same thing she's had on for two days, bursts through the first floor doorway and into the stairwell carrying a toy dinosaur constructed from Legos. Liz and Felix collide and the dinosaur crashes to the floor, breaking into a mess of pieces. I am so sorry. I'm, I'm so, so sorry. Are, are you okay? Felix tries to touch her arm. She yanks it away out of reflex. I'm fine. Felix takes a step back, putting his hands up in surrender. Sorry. It's not you. It's, well, you know. I'm so sorry about the... What was it? A dinosaur. For my son. Oh, is he... I couldn't take the waiting anymore, you know? My husband is so fucking calm about it all, and I can't take it all that stillness right now, you know? I thought maybe I could get outside this way. Well, the exit's that way. I was just leaving, actually. I I had to get out of here. If you want to come with me, I'll show you. I can't go back in there. I'll just... He motions to the dinosaur remains and kneels down. He gathers the Legos into a pile and embarks on an attempt to reassemble. You don't have to. No, no, it it was my fault. I really don't know how you're going to do that without the directions. It's a kid's toy. It can't be that complicated, right? You'd be surprised. That thing is like rocket science or something. It took me basically all of the last three days to do it. God, I'm sorry. It's okay. I haven't been able to sleep anyways. You know what that's like. Yeah. I don't think anyone sleeps in this place. Yeah. Every time you close your eyes, you see your child in pain, so instead you find stupid tasks to distract yourself, like building Lego dinosaurs, you know? What's yours in for? You don't have to talk about it. I get it. I still haven't figured out if talking about it makes it better or worse. You'd think after four or five of these, I'd have this down to some kind of science, but it seems to get scarier every time. Like the more surgeries go right, the higher the chances become that the next one will go wrong. Sometimes I think that if I articulate all the terrible things that could happen, the chances of them actually happening get lower and lower. If I say, what if my son loses a limb, then he can't actually lose a limb because then the universe would have heard what I said or something, and that's impossible. I thought that. But then yesterday, a little girl down the hall had to get her leg amputated. Osteosarcoma. Same as my son. And for a split second, I actually thought it was my fault. I thought I spoke it into existence. Of course, that's ridiculous, but... A structure begins to emerge with the Legos that vaguely resembles a dinosaur if you're really squinting to see it. God, so tired, I can't see straight. This is impossible. Told you. I really feel awful. I should have been watching where I was going. I'm the one who burst through the door. That's like the number one rule of opening doors. Do it slowly. Is it? In case someone like yourself is on the other side. Sure, I guess. But I was so focused on getting out, I wasn't even looking where I was- Besides, it's just a toy. There are more important things. Right. Of course you're right. 
you really don't have to do that. You can get back to your son, daughter. That's okay. Please, I don't want to keep you. You're not keeping me from anything. Look, we all need to escape sometimes, but... I'll just finish this up, you know, real quick and... Oh, please, don't bother. It'll just take a second. It really doesn't matter. It does matter. You made it for him. He doesn't even like dinosaurs. I just needed something to do. And I ruined it. I don't care about the fucking dinosaur. I need to fix it. I need to fix something. I need to fix it. I need to... I need to... I can't. Forget about the dinosaur. It's okay. She slides over next to him and puts an arm around him. He says nothing. She picks up the dinosaur. Kind of stupid looking thing, isn't it? Doesn't even look like a dinosaur anymore. I messed up. It's okay. No. It really isn't. I really fucked up. We're not talking about the dinosaur anymore, are we? So you messed up. So what? You're human. This isn't that kind of mistake. What kind of mistake isn't human? A big one. We've all made some big mistakes. You just have to do your best to make it better. I can't. Why not? It's irreparable, what I did. Did you do it on purpose? No. No, God, no. Then it doesn't... I didn't mean to... I, I was just so... so tired. I hadn't really slept in 48 hours and I'd never done it before. And, and she said I was ready, you know, that I would, that would be fine. And I thought, I thought if I could just do this perfectly, then I could prove myself. And I just, I, I slipped. I don't know. I, I don't know what happened. I don't. What's your name? Felix. Felix. Listen to me. I don't know what you did or why you're so bent out of shape about it, but no honest mistake is completely irreparable. I can't fix this. It's all my fault and I can't fix it. Last night, I was working on the dinosaur in my son's hospital room. He was sound asleep, completely still, almost peaceful. And I whispered to that little dinosaur, what if he dies? And I thought, now he can't possibly because I voiced it. I put the words out into the air so now it can't happen. And then I thought of the little girl down the hall. Now I can't stop thinking about all the other children in this place. If a single one of them dies today, it's going to be my fault because I put those words out into the air. That's not your fault. I know that, but a part of me can't help feeling like it. But it's not. You can't kill anybody by wishing that your son won't die. Felix, I know. 
I'm just saying that maybe this thing you think is your fault isn't really... This isn't like that. I was running away when I bumped into you. I was running away. She was going to make me face them, and I just couldn't. God, I was going to leave them without... Think of it this way. This big mistake, whatever it is, is important to your child. You have to do everything you can to fix it. But if it doesn't affect your child, then forget about it. It doesn't matter right now. Nothing but that child matters right now. Like the dinosaur. All right? All right. Thank you. No problem. God, I'm so sorry about the dinosaur. I... Felix, it doesn't matter. I just feel awful. Look, I forgive you if that helps. Thank you. I think I should probably go try to... Good luck. He takes her hands. Good luck to you too. They share a moment. He lets her go. He heads up the stairs and disappears through the top door. Liz starts to pick up the pieces of the dinosaur. She takes apart what Felix attempted to rebuild and begins to fix it herself. She knows what she's doing. The top door opens and Felix re-enters. He is now wearing a pair of scrubs. Liz stares, but says nothing. He walks with purpose down the stairs and stops outside the first floor door, shifting his weight from foot to foot. I can't do it. I think you have to. He takes a breath and walks with purpose out the door. Liz doesn't move. She just watches the door. Felix's voice drifts into the stairwell from the waiting room. Mr. and Mrs. Caldwell? Liz drops the Legos. Mr. Caldwell, is your wife around? Liz sinks to the ground. Excuse me. The door opens. Felix is back. He slowly steps into the stairwell. Felix looks at Liz. Mrs. Caldwell? Liz looks at Felix. Lights fade. Hey, everybody. It's Gary, the producer for Lights Up, Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga's new podcast for playwrights, performers, and patrons of theater. I wanted to see if you've heard about Anchor. Anchor, the platform that's hosting our podcast. If you haven't heard about Anchor yet, well, I am happy to be the first to tell you about it. It is free. F-R-E-E. -E. That's right, free. Um, there are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your computer uh, or your phone. And Anchor will distribute the podcast that you create so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts from. And you know what else? It doesn't cost you anything, but you can make money from your podcast and you don't even have to have a minimum listenership. That's right. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So do like we did. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R or anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R.fm to get started and create your podcast. Okay, so we just heard To Fix a Dinosaur by Emma Rund. Um, and we are joined by Emma now, which is really wonderful because neither Chrissy or I have ever met Emma before. So welcome to Lights Up, Emma. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. I was just going to ask how you know Andrew. That's <clears throat> yeah. So we met at uh, Playpen in Philly and Andrew actually read 
the first draft of this script for the playpen reading of the interns shows. So he was in the original cast, so to speak. <laughs> How cool is that? I love that. Yeah. We always talk about what a small world and what a great little family theater, you know, really makes us become and, and turns us into. So that's awesome. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So Emma, since you're kind of new to the ETC audience um, and for any of those listening who may not know you, give us a little brief background on yourself and how long you've been writing and all that good stuff. I am 24 years old. I graduated from Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana uh, as a theater major in 2019. So just before COVID ruined everyone's schooling. Wow. <laughs> oh my oh, gosh. Yeah. Right before. Um, and then I, I've, I discovered playwriting when I was a sophomore. Um, I, I took a playwriting class. I originally thought I wanted to be an actor as I think many of us who start in the theater worlds think. And then I took a playwriting class and was just immediately enamored by the ability to write words and then have someone else say those words. There's something very exciting about that to me. Um, so that's how I got started in playwriting and I'm still really new to it. I still feel like a baby. I'm learning so much um, every time I write something new, but but it's it's exciting and and now is a very weird time to be to be learning how to exist in the theater world as as an adult and no longer an actual student. So right this podcast came about because ETC was not able to really produce live theater right now. And I've been talking with some of my other friends and with Christy and with Gary, our, our producer, about reinventing and reinvigorating theater. And so I'm just like really inspired by you and voices like yours, because you said, you know, new, new graduate trying to figure out how to exist in theater. But I don't even know if you need to figure out how to exist. I think you're going to teach us how to exist. Oh, my goodness. Um, absolutely. <laughs> so I'm. I'm excited to see more. I can't wait and you know, a year, five years, ten years to see what else we get from you. So thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. That's really it's heartening to hear to hear some sort of positive feedback in this like hole of of a pandemic that we're in. There's not a lot of opportunity, you know, to get things read aloud and to hear any kind of feedback. So it's nice to have a little bit of encouragement. <laughs> Good. Well, and hopefully we can create a little bit of a space that, you know, many people can come and share and voice. And, you know, I think that's one of the most beautiful thing about the arts and we're all starving right now. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. More starving than we have ever been. <laughs> starving yes. Yes. Yeah. A new level <laughs> of starving. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, oh, so I guess it's a place you can dive in and if you want to redirect, let me know. Um, but so you said you did this at uh, a a play festival in Philly, right? Mm -hmm. You wrote this kind of as part of a, an intern duty or assignment there. Um, and so you saw that performed then. Um, what is that compared to hearing um, Sherry? We, we should mention that Sherry Wycliffe, um, who is a dear friend of mine as well, played the role of Liz. And then Jacob Moore, who Christy, you have seen and worked with before, played the role of Felix. Um, so I would love to hear, Emma, what you thought, having previously seen the, the, the play on its feet and now hearing Jacob and Sherry perform. Um, what was that like for you? It was really cool. I won't lie. Um, when when I first, you know, got this incredible opportunity and and knew that it was going to be a podcast, I was a little bit nervous because I've done a lot of Zoom readings and some of them have been really rough. <laughs> and so I was like, I wonder what it's going to be like to just hear it. And I was like, is it going to read the same way and like carry uh, the same way? Is it going to make sense without being able to see it? And I think the actors did an amazing job really uh, making it feel like I was just like, I kind of felt like I was closing my eyes and just imagining everything, which was really awesome. It was really cool to hear it that way. And yeah, I think, I think it, it, it gave me the ability to imagine a full production in a way that a staged reading didn't. There's something sort of freeing about not looking at anything and hearing, just hearing the words really well acted 
and just imagining what that would be like if if they were you know in a full production so I thought it was it was more than I expected it was going to be and it 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 made me kind of excited for to to try more podcast theater I was like this is a this is a form of theater that I feel like has some legs right now yeah is this a piece that you considered hashing out and developing into a bigger piece you know do you picture this going from like a 10 minute to a one act and beyond or what what has been sort of your vision for this I really just envision this as a standalone 10 minute um I think there's something kind of cool about imagining how two people's lives can come together for just 10 minutes and then maybe they never see each other again um so that's sort of one of the things that I found interesting about this particular situation was just trying to figure out, you know, what two people could come together for just 10 minutes who've never met before, but that would have incredibly high stakes. Um, so I think I, I can't imagine this. I can't imagine expanding this. I think it, I think it needs to be just a 10 minute. I can, yeah, I completely understand. Actually, I think it's very powerful as, as a 10 minute, because we all have those, can I call them interruptions when you sort of meet someone or have that conversation that you don't really expect. And those little short interruptions can have a lot of weight and a lot of power. And I think this piece really exposes that, which I think is really cool. Thank you. Yeah, 100%. Um, that was something I know we were dying to, to know is how you, how you saw this, because it does allow, you know, you were talking about imagining and visualizing as you were listening, my brain also imagines and visualizes what happens when they get Liz off the floor of that staircase and get her out. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, it, it has, has a life beyond that, but I love that you leave it up to the audience and how powerful and beautiful the way you described it as, as two people with high stakes just for those 10 minutes. Um, was that part of a prompt that you received when you were in this internship or did you completely come up with this idea and that concept on your own. Talk to us more about the actual seeds of uh, To Fix a Dinosaur. Yeah, so there wasn't any prompt. Um, Our only prompt was you need to write a 10 minute. They even left it open. They were like, you could write a 10 minute poem if you wanted to. So we had had a lot of freedom (laughs) in what we could do for that. Um, But there was, I had an image in my head that I was really fascinated by and I keep I keep like a tiny little notebook uh, with me at all times that I just jot down whatever wild idea occurs to me. I was fascinated by the idea that a hospital stairwell is an escape for people in hospitals because hospitals are so, you know, there's so much stress and there's so much emotion happening in a hospital. And you can't, you know, you can't go to the room where your loved one is and cry in front of them because you don't want to put that weight on them. Um, and, you know, if you're a doctor, you can't just break down and cry in front of patients because that would also be awful. Yeah. <laughs> you have yeah. to, you, there has to be a place for you to go. And I thought of uh, just this, the image I had was of two people Um, entering a stairwell from two different levels, both just on the edge of an emotional breakdown and how could they be somehow connected to each other and how could they, how could they need something from the other person? And, you know, how can we make this into a play? But it was definitely that just initial image of two people on two different levels in a stairwell, just ready to fall apart that I was like, I want to write something about that. Such a good metaphor. I'm almost like thinking of almost an Escher painting, right? Seeing two people that are just passing and then on those stairs and then they, they never really land and and that escape is a metaphor. You are, I'm just, I like, I've, I'm so enjoying speaking to you already. You're oh, so you. intelligent and charming and beautiful inside and out. And I think that's such, a, I love that you have this journal. I want to know what else is in your <laughs> journal full of ideas. Thank you so much. <laughs> So a common theme, and um, this was something that Dana hit on, which I absolutely loved. So um, Dana, if you want to jump in, please feel free to. But, oh, take it away, Christy. <clears throat> okay, so your two your two characters have 
such exhaustion, just the embodiment of it in what they've been through, which is an interesting theme considering right now with um, our current climate and everything going on that there seems to be just exhaustion even prevalent in our society right now. Um, so having, was that an intentional theme that you put in there? Was that something, um, I mean, you talked about those high emotions, two different levels, almost them coming and meeting in the middle. Yeah. Well, honestly, that sort of came from trying to figure out what, what kind of state would a person have to be in to completely fall apart and be vulnerable with a stranger. Um, and I think that takes a very specific set of conditions. Like if you are, are well rested and, right with yourself, then you're probably not going to melt down in front of a complete stranger. You're probably going to keep it together. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I was trying to figure out um, how to bring these characters to a place where they could be very emotionally vulnerable with each other. It also was sort of critical for Felix's journey because, you know, he makes a mistake because he's so tired and because he's so overworked. Um, so that was sort of critical in that sense. And then, I mean, just from uh, personal ex- experience, my, my older brother passed away from osteosarcoma when I was really little. And so as a kid, I spent a lot of time in hospitals and you know, everyone was tired all the time. My parents were tired, tired all the time because, you know, they'd sleep in a chair in the hospital room rather than going home and sleeping. So there's just sort of, especially in a pediatric unit um, where, you know, kids are facing life-threatening illnesses, there's just this sort of air of exhaustion. Everyone is running on like four hours of sleep or less. And, um, yeah, it just felt just felt true to have them be exhausted. And thank you for sharing some personal parts of your life with us. And I know, like, we hear that so often about being tired as as a doctor and being tired as a parent. And Christy is a mom, so she could definitely chime in on that. But I, I, I when Christy and I were talking about this, re, um, hearing this now through the lens of COVID has been so interesting because right two groups of of people that have become these everyday heroes um healthcare workers and parents mm-hmm. um are really being sung uh, and and as overworked underpaid you know are finally being kind of recognized because parents are having to do school from home and parent and work from home and the healthcare workers are working around the clock on a virus and so that just hit me even 10 times harder hearing this. And now we know I was going to ask you, you know, when this was written and now we know for sure it was written before COVID. So that's just, mm-hmm. that just, I, I don't know if it amplifies for you any personal stuff, but it totally amplified things for me now looking at, at it through this lens. So it was a very recognizable and palpable um, theme and emotion that was coming through in the writing. That's really interesting. Cause I, I guess I haven't thought about this this play or that that theme in the context of COVID. I don't know that I'd, I mean, before listening to the podcast recording, I don't think I'd revisited this in lockdown. So that is really interesting to think about um, how that's sort of all becoming even more relevant right now. But no, it's it's always been true. Doctors have always been overworked. <laughs> And parents are always overworked and exhausted. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think both my brother and I are adults and I think they still feel overworked and exhausted. Yeah. <laughs> I guess uh, another thing Christy and I were talking about um, in this that we could kind of ask you about is the development of Felix's character mm-hmm. and the reveal of how much information he knows. Um, clearly Liz doesn't know anything. We're assuming that that because he was a resident or it's part of a teaching hospital. Felix mm-hmm. was not probably part of, of these meetings about Liz's son's surgery. So we know that Liz doesn't know Felix, but throughout the play, Liz asks some leading questions about your child, your son, your daughter, and, and Felix 
dodges those. Um, was that a conscious choice for Felix to know a little more, to have a little more information? Or was that part of, in your mind, his like emotional exhaustion, blindness, that he was so fixated on his issue? Um, talk to us about that character development and, and the knowledge that they had in this situation. Yeah, so Felix changed a lot over the course of the various drafts of this play. Um, he started off as just completely innocent and, and ignorant and just with blinders on, just so focused on his own issue. And then I think he, over the course of the various drafts, he developed a little more into this character that does know he he figures things out a little bit but i think i think early on in the play he is mostly unresponsive because he's so focused on his own problem but then the more he hears liz talk about her sort of secondhand guilt um when she talks about how she voices things that she doesn't want to happen to her own son. And then when they happen to another child in the hospital, she feels like she's responsible. I think the moment in the play where she says that if another child died, she would feel responsible. I think that in that moment, Felix thinks that if he reveals what's happened, um, no matter whose child that was on the table, I don't think at that point personally, and I think it could be interpreted differently, but I don't think that he knows that the child whose death he was responsible for was hers mm. until the very, very end. Um, I think he might suspect and is like trying to deny it, um, but I don't think he knows for sure until the very end. But I do think that when she says that she would feel responsible for the death of another child. He doesn't, he wants to hide that from her even more because he doesn't want her to feel responsible for this death. The other thing Christine and I discussed was, was finding purpose in, in mothering. Like Liz finds a purpose in mothering Felix. And now something that hadn't occurred to me until hearing you say that is Felix kind of found a little bit of a purpose in protecting and, and and parenting Liz in a way that I'm like I want to go back and and listen again now, <laughs> kind of, you know and maybe it's because I identified with the female maternal perspective but that's 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 really a, a beautiful thought behind the character development as well so this is a question it's, it might be a silly one but uh, nonetheless still sort of a question um about Felix starting off in street clothes versus coming into the stairwell in scrubs um talk to us about the that decision was that something you debated going back and forth or or why the choice to start him with street clothes yes yeah this is a, a common question that I've gotten a lot about this play and so I have thought about it a lot um, one of the reasons that I really wanted him to be in street clothes is that I don't want the audience to know that he's a doctor. I really wanted the, the audience to get a little bit tricked into thinking that maybe he was a parent or had someone in the hospital that he was there for and, and falling apart over. Um, my reasoning for why he's in street clothes is that he's he's planning on running away. He's not going to, he's not planning on telling the parents what happened, which is what he's been assigned to do. Um, instead, he changed out of his bloody scrubs and he put his street clothes back on to leave the hospital and to go home. This might be, probably is his intended end of career. He's not returning. Oh. Um, and, Liz stops him and Liz changes that trajectory for him. So when he goes back up and changes into scrubs and comes down to, to that's when he comes down to actually deliver the news that he is supposed to deliver. Um, and yeah, I don't, I don't really know what happens to him after that. And I think it's, it's kind of more interesting to leave that open-ended to figure out 
is he gonna you know stick with this career or is he going to to quit like he intends to in the very beginning. I'm the kind of person who goes back and forth on an open-ended thing. I like closure, but I also like that you let me create my own ending at at the very least. Um, (laughs) You know, that's, I, because then I can create my own closure. So I do like that. Um, So I'm your antithesis a little bit because I love (laughs) open-ended things. I I love to be able to debate and, and, you know, like you look for the nuance and what would really happen? Well, he's, you know, I love that stuff. Yes. Well, see, I think, and I think the reason that I accept when I get excited about an open-ended ending, if we can call it that, where I can imagine my own is because you did give us a final resting place. You gave us a final image um, mm-hmm. of of Felix talking to Liz's husband and we have Liz on the, on that floor in the staircase and the landing and them looking at each other that you gave me some closure and you gave me a final picture and now I can, I can at least decide where they go from there. Um, but one of the questions when I first even just read the play before we even got to hear it performed, um, one of the questions I came up with and Christy and I talked about this in our intro when we were introducing the play mm-hmm. is forgiveness conditional. Well, I love the way that you phrase that. Um, I I haven't thought of it in that exact phrasing, but that idea is absolutely a a central part of this play and just grappling with, you know, Liz giving this, this forgiveness. And she says, whatever, whatever it is you did, I forgive you. It's fine. And just that the heaviness of her not knowing what she's forgiving him for. And, um, the, the heaviness of, of leaving that question unresolved at the end of the play is she, she doesn't take it back at the end of the play, but she also doesn't really have an opportunity to. Does she, does she scream at him? Does she say she hates him? Does she say she's going to sue him? Like, does she come at him with something or do we just let that question linger? And I think I, yeah, I just love the way you phrased it because it's, <laughs> it, it sounds so much more elo- eloquent and, uh, and beautiful in that, in that phrasing. But yeah, that idea was definitely something that I was really interested in and, and thought about a lot. Brene Brown has this thing called foreboding joy. Um, I don't know if you guys dig into Brene Brown's work at all. She's one of my super gurus, but, um, when you like, look at your child and suddenly all these flashes of all these potential terrible things that could happen, kind of go through your mind of like, what if, what if these things happen, you know, cause you're just overwhelmed with such incredibly, oh goodness. I don't know. Overwhelmed with beautiful emotion of how much you love this child and other things. And then it's like, it has to be undergirded with this panic of what if something's going to go wrong and what if you're not okay? And, um, so reading this piece totally brought those feelings right under the skin for me. Just that I can't imagine, I can't fathom as a parent. I mean, the story, Emma, of what your parents went through with your brother, just, I mean, I hear that and I immediately ache um, because as a parent, you just want a beautiful journey for your children. And I'm just grateful for the grace everywhere. I guess I'll put it that way because it's the only thing that can restore beauty to tragedy. Thank you. And I'm very grateful for for this opportunity to to talk to you guys. This has been a wonderful conversation. So much fun. Um, so we like to finish this up with what we call our rapid fire questions. Are you ready, Miss Emma? I am so ready. Awesome. All right. What is your favorite word? Uh, anti-disestablishmentarianism. <laughs> what is your least favorite word? Damp. What is your favorite app? Goodreads. What is your favorite or your most used emoji? Probably the monkey covering his eyes. What is your favorite board game? Uh, Mysterium. So you play with, there's one person who plays a ghost and then there are all the other people play like mediums. And basically the board is a haunted house. The, the whole purpose of the game, it's kind of like Clue where they're 
basically you, the ghost, are trying to tell everyone how you were murdered. Sweet or savory? Uh, sweet. Window or aisle seat? Window. Dolphins or koalas? Koalas. Dark chocolate or milk chocolate? Dark chocolate. Me too. Um, summer or winter? Summer. All right. Name a dessert you don't like. Um, I'm not a big fan of cherry pie. Um, what is one superpower you wish you had? Ooh, teleportation. What are three things you cannot live without? Oh, man. Uh, probably my computer, unfortunately. Um, my cat and um, my KitchenAid mixer. Okay, if you had a tattoo, what would it be? And where would it be? Or if you have tattoos, tell us about them. That is a great question. I don't have any tattoos. If I were to get a tattoo, I would get the uh, Jacob's Ladder flower in honor of my brother, whose name was Jacob. And I would get it on my side, like as close to my heart as it could get. Okay, so you're stuck on an island and you can pick one food to eat forever and ever without getting tired of it. What is it? Maybe fried chicken, if it wouldn't destroy the environment. Like, let's just pretend that meat doesn't destroy the environment for a second. <laughs> Did you have like a fried chicken in your head when you said it? Like, were you like, man, this experience of fried chicken? Yes. Yeah. So there's this restaurant called Lee's that was in Muncie where I went to college and it was my favorite fried chicken place. There's just something about their chicken that tastes so good. What is a book or play that you think everyone should read? Homegoing by Yagasi. I just recently read that and I think that it should be taught in schools everywhere. It's super important. It's um, really quick pitch. It's about two half sisters who are uh, separated in Ghana at the very start of the slave trade. And one of them marries a white man and stays in Ghana and the other is sold into slavery. And it follows, it generationally follows both sides of the family up to modern day. If your life were a song, what would the title be? A girl, her cat, and a pot of coffee. If you could master one instrument, what would it be? Uh, piano. I wish I could be good at piano. If you could live anywhere else in the world, where would you live? Salzburg. What is your favorite way to rest or decompress? Ooh, uh, reading, definitely reading. Probably like curled up on the couch with some tea or a drink, an alcoholic drink, <laughs> uh, and just reading a book. Okay, if you could switch lives with someone for a day, who would it be? Emma Watson? So what's inspiring you in life right now? Honestly, nature. Uh, just like going on walks. And I went kayaking this past weekend for the first time in ages. And it was just like, I being in the apartment all the time, I feel like I there are no new ideas and I feel kind of stuck. And then, um, you know, I go for a walk or to the park or kayaking or whatever. And then all of a sudden the ideas start flowing again and it feels like there's some hope. <laughs> so, so definitely nature is the biggest inspiration right now. Um, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? I don't know. I don't know if this is quite advice, but uh, something my college uh, theater teacher has said that, that I keep going back to as, as something to keep me going is, she, she said, in, in any moment that you doubt yourself, remember that I'm telling you in this moment that you can do this. I love that. I really yeah. love that. That's awesome. And you just told all of our listeners, like everybody just remember, <laughs> we, all, we all think and know you can do it. I'm like going to cry again, but that's, that's a great one. Yeah, there you go. I know. I think that's one of my favorites we've heard so far. Oh, good. Um, what would you like to be remembered for? Making people feel good. Um, I, I would just love like the people that are in my life to, to remember me as someone who like made them happy or made them feel, feel safe and, and brought a little bit of joy or comfort into their life. 
And last question, describe yourself in a hashtag. I think I might have to skip this last one. I don't know what I would be as a hashtag. <laughs> I know my hashtag for you would be hashtag damn delight because you are a damn delight. This oh, has been so great. You are so charming and so intelligent. And so I just have so much hope now. I love meeting you know, new artists, but playwrights, especially, please give us more words to say. Um, I, I just, you know, from on behalf of Christy and, and ETC, both like, thank you so much for being here. This has been wonderful. Thank you. I've had such a good time. This has really brightened up my Wednesday. The winner of this week's prompt is Bodega Nights by Alice Nora. Lights up. On a bodega, late at night, we see a cat on the counter next to the register. A girl is waiting for her order of late-night goodies. She is drunk, and she's fumbling with her belongings when she notices the cat. She is shocked. Oh, my God. Freya, is that, that you? Miss, pay for your order or leave. You know the drill. Seriously? How did you get here? I swore. I swear it sees. I locked the door when I left. Miss, miss, you must take your order or leave. You're holding up the line. Do you? Do you all hear these things? I am being scolded by this burglar. You burgle. How dare. How dare. Shame on you, Bodega Thief. Ma'am. Ma'am? Mamma? Did you just mammy in my face? Uh, listen, can I just... Excuse me. Can I just get a coffee black? Do you want coffee too? I, I think you can use it. Does this look like stir <gasps> books? I do not see frappuccinos. Do you? I do not. No, thank you very much. All the time, never know. Wait, wait, don't leave. Grabs the customer by the arm, pulling them aside seriously and loudly whispering for the bodega clerk to hear. That's my kitty cat! Um, what? I, I didn't, I couldn't hear you. What? That's my kitty I think the bodega clerk burgled me for my cat. Do you really think this kind bodega clerk took time out of their busy evening to burgle your cat from your apartment? Yes. Freya! Girl proceeds to grab the cat and stuff it in her bag, bolting for the door. Bodega clerk throws a deli sandwich at the girl. She falls into the door with the cat crying in her bag. Cat leaps from bag to high up shelf. Safe. Girl continues rushing out of the bodega sans cat and Sammy. How did you... She comes in here every time she's drunk and tries to steal Oreo. Lights fade. If you would like to submit to Propt, visit our Instagram or Facebook page for the ingredients to be included in the play, then send your play to lightsup at ensembletheaterofchattanooga.com. Lights Up is a podcast produced by the Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga, a 501c3 nonprofit independent theater company located in southeast Tennessee. Lights Up is hosted by Christy Gallo and Dana Colagiovanni. Sound by Eric Red Wyatt. Graphics by Jamie Goodnight and Casey Keelan as the associate producer. Tune in next time for The Rental by Mark Harvey Levine. Lights up. Sonia's apartment, early morning. There is a knock at the door. Sonia staggers out, half awake, tying on a robe. At her door is Harold, a 30-ish normal-looking man in a nice coat. He carries a bouquet of flowers and a clipboard and a picnic basket. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, copied, or presented without the expressed written consent of the Ensemble Theatre of Chattanooga. 
The plays presented on this podcast are protected by all national and international copyright laws. If you are interested in producing any of the plays featured on Lights Up, contact us and we will get you in touch with the playwright. If you would like your play considered for a future episode or would like to be an actor or reader, please shoot us a message at lightsup at ensembletheaterofchattanooga.com. As a nonprofit, ETC relies on donations and the goodwill of patrons and supporters like you. If you would like to make a one-time donation to ETC, please visit our website for details. Or you can become a monthly subscriber on Patreon and get access to exclusive content. You can also support us by giving us a like and rating this podcast. Lights Up is hosted by Anchor, a Spotify company. The easiest way to make a podcast.